You are listening to the Fur Road Christian Church Podcast. Our mission is to love God and love people. For more information about Fur Road, visit furroadcc.org. That is F-I-R-R-O-A-D-C-C dot org. Now for this week's message. Hi guys. As always, thank you for joining us. Believe it or not, we're almost done with the book of Mark. So we just have two chapters left. And, and I thought to start, we would have a little trivia quiz, uh, kind of from things throughout the book of Mark. And so we're going to do multiple choice. I'll, I'll give you the question and then uh, read the options and then we'll give you the answer. So here we go. First of all, whose mother-in-law was sick with a fever when Jesus healed her? Okay, was it Mary? Was it Jairus? Was it Peter? So A, B, or C. Got it? The answer is... Peter. All right. Question two. Who were the inner circle or the inner core of three disciples? Okay. Was it Andrew, James, and John? Or was it Peter, James, and John? Or was it Peter, Andrew, and Levi? Okay. The answer is B, Peter, James, and John. All right. So hopefully you're doing okay. Number three. How many baskets of bread were left over when Jesus fed the 4,000? Was it five? Was it seven? Or is it 12? Okay, the answer is B, 7. Next question. Who are the two people who appeared before Jesus at the transfiguration? Was it Elijah and Moses? Was it Moses and Elisha? Was it Elijah and Elisha? Okay, the answer is A, Elijah and Moses. All right. What was the name of the synagogue leader whose daughter died and Jesus brought her back from the dead? Was it Caiaphas? Was it Pilate or was it Jairus? The answer is C, Jairus. Okay, and then one more from last week. This is probably the hardest one. What Old Testament book was Jesus quoting from when he said, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? Okay, was it from Zechariah, Jeremiah, or Isaiah? The answer is Isaiah. So, if you got all those right, you can pat yourself on the back. Good job. You win the prize. Um, all right. So this is an important day because in Mark 12, we get the chance to hear directly from Jesus what he believes is the most important teaching or command in all of Scripture. And it's probably some pretty important things, don't you think? Okay. Uh, what he says, it's called the Great Shema. So say that with me, Shema. Okay. You have to kind of say it with some, some feelings. Shema. All right, go ahead and say that. Good job. Uh, so we, we build up to that teaching later on in Mark 12, but let's start in the beginning of the chapter. For the moment, Jesus switches to talking in parables again. And if you remember, one of the main reasons that Jesus started talking in parables in the first place earlier in Mark was because the people had uh, rebellious hearts and uh, weren't willing to hear him or listen to him. Their hearts were hardened. And so if you go back just to Mark 11, uh, the authority of Jesus was questioned again, as it often was, by the religious leaders. And, and so he's dealing with uh, a whole lot of hardened hearts as we go th through things. And, and so he starts talking in parables. And, and So let's read, beginning in verse 1. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. 
But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the other head, on the head, and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Um, Then they looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Okay, so... So what's going on here? What is, is Jesus saying? What's he talking about? Well, this parable is basically tracing the, the history of Israel. Jesus is basing this parable on a story from Isaiah 5, verse 1 through 7, which also dealt with a vineyard. And in that story, the Israelites were also rebellious. And so Jesus revises the story here. Uh, but overall, it's the same concept. And so the landowner is God. The tenant is Israel. They, they were entrusted with being God's chosen people. Uh, they were entrusted with producing fruit for God. It was a big responsibility, but they rebelled against God. Okay, not just a little bit, but a whole lot. And God sent many people to, to warn them along the way. We call them prophets, and, and they killed most of the prophets. Um, and now God has sent his son. And you'd think they would recognize him and, and respect him, but they don't. And soon they will kill him too. Notice the phrase to describe the son that was sent by the landowner. It says it was the one whom he loved. Okay, do you recognize that from anywhere? Okay, we've seen a similar phrase twice before in Mark. Uh, Once at Jesus' baptism and then also at the transfiguration when God said, This is my son whom I love. Okay, so the response of the people was, Oh, they, they heard this, and, and oh, okay, yeah, wow, that, that's true. Uh, it cut, cut them to the heart. We need to shape up and realize the, the error, of, error of our ways. Okay, is that what happened? Is that the response? You know, because we, we all do that, right? When we're wrong, we, we, we repent, make it right, right away. We say, sure, oh, yeah, I get it. No, okay? We usually get defensive first. We, we dig in our feet. We blame other people. We get mad. And these guys did that too. Their response was to get to angry, to get angry, to look for a way to to arrest him, because their hearts were hardened, and, and they would soon fulfill exactly what the parable said would happen. They would kill the son. And so, my first main point I want us to pull pull out from this Mark twelve passage is this: Don't let your pride and stubbornness keep you from doing the right thing. Okay, the right thing before God. Anybody ever struggle with that? I do. You know, the leaders knew Jesus was talking about them, but they, they just couldn't change the direction they were going at this point. Okay, their, their hearts were just too callous. They couldn't see or hear the truth. And believe it or not, all of us are, are going to have times when we're wrong about something, right? Okay, everybody shake your heads, yes. Okay, say, say this, sometimes I am wrong. Come on, say it. Sometimes I am wrong. OK? 
okay, but you can do it. There's a story about a, a company who felt it was time for a shakeup, so they hired a new CEO. And this new boss was determined to, to rid the company of all the slackers. And on a tour of the facilities, the CEO noticed a guy leaning on a wall. And he wanted to let everyone know that he meant business. So, so we asked the guy, how much money do you make a week? A little surprised, the young fellow looks at him and replied, well, I make about 500 a week. Why? The CEO then handed him $1,000 in cash. And he screamed, now here's two weeks' pay. Now get out and don't come back. So feeling pretty good about his first firing, the CEO looked around the room and asked, does anyone want to tell me what that goof-off did here? With a kind of a sheepish grin, one of the other workers muttered, well, he's the pizza delivery guy. The CEO is wrong. Okay, he, made, he made a big mistake. And I know it's hard to swallow your pride and, and, and admit that you're wrong. Uh, it's hard for all of us, but sometimes that, that's just what you have to do. It's the right thing to do. And like I said, nobody likes to do it. But don't let your pride and stubbornness keep you from doing and saying the right thing. And if you do make a mistake, own up to it. Make things right. It, it actually says a lot about your faith to be able to admit that you're wrong. Okay. Next we have some questions for Jesus. And so we move down to Mark 12. Now there was three major Jewish political groups at that time. Okay, there were the Sadducees, there's the Pharisees, and there was a, a group called the Herodians. And they all had kind of a different way of viewing things, just like there are a lot of different groups within Christianity today. Uh, we have all three groups represented here in this chapter. And while they had some different theological views, they all seemed to, to be united on one thing, that they needed to stop Jesus, and, and they needed to do it quickly. And so, first of all, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they came to talk to him, and they're going to kind of give it their best shot to, to knock him down. And, and so the Herodians, first of all, let me talk about them, they were political supporters of Herod Antipas, uh, often referred to as King Herod. And if you remember, Herod is the one who ordered John the Baptist uh, beheaded. And so his official title under the Roman government was Tetrarch of Galilee and Perea. And remember, Jesus, his home base for the, his public ministry was in, in Galilee. And so uh, King Herod would have felt, you know, probably threatened by Jesus. His dad was Herod the Great, and his dad was the one who tried to have Jesus killed when he was a baby, uh, you know, with all the other babies. Um, and so the Herodians were loyal to King Herod, uh, also did not want to make waves with Roman government. Okay, so that's them. The Pharisees uh, were actually a pretty small group of men, but they had a great deal of influence to the Jews. And, and their biggest concern was to strictly observe all the ordinances of Judaism concerning ritual purity and uh, as divine by tradition and to carry out religious duties such as tithing and, and uh, ceremonial washings. And so Jesus was, was hardest on the Pharisees. Okay, so... So we have those two groups. Let's start reading about this in verse 13. Later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. 
Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, Whose portrait is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Okay, so they they start talking to Jesus. I think they're speaking to him in a very sarcastic tone here. Uh, Jesus, you're such a great and honest man. Uh, We really want to know your, your thoughts on this subject. Really? Baloney. Okay, they, they didn't really believe that he taught the truth from God. They just were trying to trap him. And Jesus knew it. And, and here's the thing. Jesus really couldn't win in, in their minds because the Herodians would have felt that it, it was probably the right thing to, to pay taxes to Caesar. They didn't want to disrupt things uh, with the Roman government. They were loyal to the, to the Roman government. And then you had the, the Pharisees, they're kind of on the other side. They would not have wanted to pay taxes to Rome. You know, temple taxes, yes, but, but not government taxes. And so they despised the Roman government. So it seemed like kind of a no-win situation for Jesus. And maybe that's kind of why they came together to talk to him. But, but I love how Jesus responds because I think they think they have a slam-dunk situation. There's no way to answer this properly. They have him trapped. Now remember, they're in the temple courts when this conversation is happening. And, and I think Jesus gives a, a sarcastic response back to them. Okay, you know, we're in God's house here. Why would you want to keep what is, you know, Caesar's? Okay, Caesar was the Roman emperor. The Jews despised Caesar. Jesus says, you don't like Caesar, so why, why do you want to keep a coin with his picture on it? Give it back to him. Doesn't make sense. And then he says, you know, give to God what is God's, which is a, a brilliant statement. But, you know, what does that mean, to give to God what is God's? Well, if you remember, Jesus has brought up before in Mark, what what image man was created in, okay? Man was created in the image of God, okay? The the coin had the image of Caesar. Man is created in the image of God. So God's kingdom isn't about coins. It isn't about taxes. It's about being willing to give yourself fully to God. And so that's what it means to give to God what is God's. He created you. He desires for you to give all of yourself back to him. So our next point, main point is to give to God what is God's which is you okay that's what you can give to him it's not about your money that's not what you know that it's about he he made you in his image and he wants and deserves all of you and so are you willing to give back to God what is God's and yes this includes giving back to God financially that's one part of it but it also includes giving God other things your time it includes living your life for him it's about making God Priority number one in your life. Okay, and it says they were amazed at him. Okay, who is this guy that no matter what we say has this way of coming back at us? And it drives him crazy. And, and in this honor-shame culture, he always finds a way to gain the honor in the minds of the leaders. And they lose honor. And they don't like it. And he needs to die. He needs to be stopped. Okay, so th- then our third group, the Sadducees. Um, they decide to take their turn. And, and we really don't know a, a ton about the Sadducees, but they seem to be from the upper class of Jewish society. They denied the possibility of life after death. And so in Jewish terms, they didn't believe there would be a resurrection of the dead. When you die, that's it. It's done. And they only believed in the, the five books of, of Moses, um, Genesis through Deuteronomy. They, they're the only ones that had any authority. And so with that in mind, let's start reading in verse 18. 
Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. Okay, so, so first of all, since they don't believe in life after death, this whole question is kind of a ridiculous question that they're asking. It doesn't even make sense that they would ask the question. The truth is that it's actually more about honor and legacy for those who are still alive. Okay, that's what they're getting at. That's what they're asking about. And if they were really honest, what they're really asking is who, who would be stuck with this woman? Okay, who has to deal with her? None of the men really wanted to, to be with this woman, but out of obligation, they were stuck with her. Okay, this question is actually based on Deuteronomy 25, 5 and 6. It said, if brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. Um, the first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. Okay, so that's kind of the original source of their question. And I believe that Jesus' answer is actually more about responding to the heart of their question than the actual question. Okay, I think we misread this passage when we make it about what marriage is going to be like in heaven. Okay, I think that heaven is, is beyond our, our human understanding of what this is going to look like. And so I don't think Jesus is really talking about the specifics here of marriage in heaven. So first of all, he says, when the dead rise... So he's saying that you're wrong about what happens when you die. There will be a resurrection of the dead. So get that right, first of all. But I also think Jesus is dealing with the honor of the woman here. Okay, in the afterlife, honor is not dependent on who we are married to. Okay, honor is based on who you are in God. Okay, um, God is going to take care of this woman who none of you really care about. So you don't need to worry about it. This woman who had no rights in that society will have full rights in God's kingdom. And so what I want to point out from this passage is this. Everyone has honor in God's eyes. Okay, In a culture that gave no honor to women, Jesus valued them and gave them honor. He treated them with dignity and respect. And we see that several times through the book of Mark. And I know I'm a broken record, but he's turning things upside down. And so the, the sad, you see, couldn't trap Jesus either because they were sad, you see. Okay, my minister growing up used to say that joke all the time, and it, it was bad then, and it's still bad now. So I apologize. And that leads us to the, the greatest commandment. It was known as the, the great Shema. We talked about it earlier, so let's say it again, Shema. So verse 28 says this. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked them, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well, well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor yourself is more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Hey, they, they didn't trap him. It didn't work. So this teacher of the law comes to Jesus, and, and, and this this person was probably not involved in one of those three previous groups. He's a, he's a Jewish teacher. Uh, he seems to be at least somewhat favorable to the teachings of Jesus. And he asks Jesus this question, what's the most important commandment? So our, our ears should perk up. You know, people are wondering, what does Jesus say? And, and Jesus goes back to the great Shema, which is a, actually from Deuteronomy 6. The full part is 1 through 6. And, and this was something that Jewish kids learned from the, the time they were little. Good, pious Jews would recite it every morning, every night in their prayers. They still do this. Uh, the, the original command took place after the exodus and deliverance uh, out of Egypt and really kind of defined the relationship between God and his people. And so Shema is simply uh, the Hebrew word for hear, which is how this teaching starts. Hear, O Israel. And so then it, it's basically about relying on God completely for everything. Um, they recited it, but living it out was much more difficult. And it's the same with us. We, we can memorize scripture, but if it doesn't change our hearts, then it, it's, it's pretty meaningless, really. And so, uh, once again, verse 30, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Okay, this means loving God from the, the, the deepest depths of your soul. Okay, everything about you loves God. And that command hasn't changed in the last 2,500 years. It's the same. But then he adds a second command. Uh, in the Matthew account of this same story, Jesus says uh, the second one is like it. In Mark, it just says here's the second. Um, so, but the guy didn't ask for two commandments, right? He asked for one, but Jesus gave him two. So why is that? Um, the sec second commandment again, love your neighbor as yourself. This originally comes from Leviticus 19.18, where it says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge uh, anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. Okay? So, hey, by the way, um, there are a few other commands in that same list from Leviticus. Uh, it says, Do not wear clothing woven out uh, of two kinds of material. It says, Do not cut the hair on your temples or trim your beards. It says, do not mate different kinds of animals. It says, do not eat any meat with blood, with the blood still in it. So um, keep those in mind. That's bonus information, just a free of charge. Thought you'd like to know. Um, but the second commandment is love your neighbor as yourself, as I said. So how is this second command like the first? Okay, how is loving your neighbor like loving God? Ozark professor Shane Wood said it well when he described it like this. If you want to accomplish the first, you need to practice the second. Okay? If you want to accomplish the first, you need to practice the second. If you're going to love God with all of your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength, you need to love your neighbor. 
Okay, you need to love the people around you. So what Jesus is doing here is saying that loving God is more than just something you say. It is something you do. And, and I think Jesus added this second part because people didn't truly understand. They weren't grasping what it, it meant to fully love God. They thought they showed their love by God of God by following a list of rules. Loving God means living out the great Shema. He, he's telling this religious leader that you can't just say you love God and not do anything about it. Loving God involves action. And as Jesus has a way of doing, he, he, he breaks through the tradition. You know, just reciting this prayer doesn't mean anything. And so let me ask you, what, what does loving your neighbor as yourself mean for you? What's that look like? What's it lead you to do? What action steps do you need to take? And this applies to our church as a whole as well. Okay, and, and if we aren't radiating the love of God and showing the love of God to the world around us, as the world around us as a church, then we aren't really loving God. Now Shane again said, if you want to accomplish the first, you need to practice the second. And that's so true. Loving God and loving people, they go hand in hand. Here's the point I want you to remember. Loving your neighbors is the outward sign of our love for God. Okay, we can't say that we're a church about loving God if we're not a church that loves people. Does that make sense? You can't have one without the other. Okay, so that's the big commandment from Jesus that he, he thought was so important and so true. Okay, the next section is about Jesus uh, it's being hard on the religious leaders. Okay, we've talked about this a lot. I'm just going to read that passage and then move on to the next sec section because it, it ties into that. But starting in verse 38, it says, As he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Okay, so keep that in mind as I read this next section, especially the part about the widows. Okay, devour widows' houses. Verse 41, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worthy only a fraction of a penny. Worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Now, here's the thing. Okay, they did have a system set up to feed widows, okay, which was a good thing. Okay, they would deliver food twice a week. And each time there would be enough food for three days. And then on the seventh day, uh, the widow would fast, like, just like other good Jews would do. But the question is, you know, why did this woman have no money at all? Okay, what was going on with that? And I would say there's a good chance that it went back to verse 40 that says they devour widows' houses. Okay, the teachers of the law, they relied on the contributions of people to make a living. Okay, widows were easy prey, and, and they were often taken advantage of. There's a good chance that this woman had been taken advantage of by the religious leaders. And so this woman, who had nothing left to her name except for these two of the smallest coins that, that they had in circulation, 
Each coin would have been worth less than a penny. That's all she had. But she said, I, I want to give you everything I have. And, and she put her two small coins into the offering plate. Just like this. And people saw this. And they viewed this as disgraceful. You know, there was no honor in giving two small coins. You know, what good is that going to do? How's that going to help anything? But even though she had a rough life and, and she, she hardly had anything, she wanted to honor and worship God by giving all that she had. And the cool thing is that Jesus gave her honor and, and took it away from those who seemed to have the honor once again by turning things upside down. And we can learn a huge lesson from this widow of what God honors and values, and that is that God loves a gift given from the heart. Okay, sometimes that gift is financial. But whether that is a big amount or a little amount, it, it needs to come from the heart. Okay, sometimes that gift is time. You know, giving up your time for God. We have a whole lot of people who give up this, their time for this church. Okay, and it takes dozens and dozens of people to, to make everything happen that we do at Fur Road. And we're so thankful for our volunteers. But God has never been about doing things for show. Okay, he simply wants your heart in anything we do, whether it be big or small. So guys, in order to truly love God, you need to love people. Okay, I want that to just you resonate in your heads this week. Okay, that, that's going to look a little different for each of us. But all of us are in a unique position to love on other people. Okay, nobody else is in your exact same situation. I know I say this a lot. And so you are uniquely positioned by God to love your particular neighbors. Okay, the specific people that God has placed in your life. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. If you want to accomplish the first, you need to practice the second. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we look through this book and there's been so much good stuff in here. And yet today we, we hear what Jesus says is the most important thing. And we combine these two things. We, we think about loving God. And we think about loving our neighbors. And, and we see that really they're connected because we can't really do one without the other. And so help us to do that. Help us to know what that looks like in our lives. Help us to be open to, to each day to say, hey, God, how... How can I love my neighbor today? What's that look like? Who are you going to put in my path? Help us to not be like the, uh, the Pharisees, the religious leaders who just had the callous hearts. And if we have an area, each of us, that, that needs to be chipped away at, I pray that you'll just let us do that. Make us moldable like clay. Thank you for working with us, God. Thank you for being patient. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Okay, guys.
So what are you going to do to love God and love people this week? All right, God bless and have a great week.